You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, We'll be looking at verses 11 through 17, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. As we come to this text here in 1 Peter, and some also, uh, well, I guess Romans 13 would be one many point to most often, and discussing the topic of authority and our submission, and there's been a lot of talk, especially lately, about to what extent do we submit ourselves to the authorities, the human authorities that are over us? Uh, Do we completely, in every way, always, without question, submit ourselves to those authorities that are over us? Or is there a limit on on those authorities? And and what is that limit? How how far does it go? Uh, That's been talked about very much lately. And to be honest with you, especially as we, we look at society and we see the direction things have been going in, I think it's important to be having that discussion and that debate. And so hopefully we can look to God's word now and, and try to work at settling that for ourselves. What, what does God's word say? On this, uh, I, I referenced the book in Sunday school, uh, Just Thinking About the State by uh, Virgil Walker and uh, Daryl Harrison. But in the foreword to that book, written by John MacArthur, he said this, Jesus' famous statement about taxpaying recognizes that there is a legitimate role for secular civil government. Within the realm of Caesar's legal authority, believers have a duty to submit to the government even when it might be unpleasant or costly. Christians are not supposed to be political insurrectionists. At the same time, Jesus' words about rendering to Caesar also implicitly draws a clear line of demarcation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this, kingdoms of this world. The things that are God's do not belong to Caesar. Furthermore, Christ is Lord over all, meaning he is the supreme authority in the universe, even over Caesar. So when the whims and edicts of civil government are clearly at odds with the law of God, or when Caesar tries to overrule and supplement the sovereign prerogative of Christ, we must obey God rather than man. So I, I think as we come to the text, we'll develop a little bit why he, he says what he does here. So as we've been working through First Peter, we've seen Peter calling his readers uh, to remember the fact that they have this living hope that God, by his mercy, has caused them to be born again into, born again into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And having been born again into this living hope, Peter called his readers to pursue holiness, to be holy as God is holy, to fear the Father, knowing with what price they have been purchased, the price of the precious blood of Christ. And so now, that they who believe are are no longer who they used to be. They're born again. Peter calls them to then live together as a family, to have this family love, this brotherly love for one another. And therefore, their love should be sincere. Uh, It should be persistent from a pure heart. 
So then believers are to put off sin, and in doing so, desire the pure spiritual milk of God's word. And then last week, we saw uh, that those in this family, those who belong together as the church, make up the church. They are like living stones, the building blocks of the church, building, being built up into the spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. That all who trust in Christ, all whom God has shown his mercy, all who trust in him make up the people of God. And so we see the importance of the gospel hope. We see the importance of being a body together to do what Peter is calling his readers to, to stand firm and pursue holiness even in the face of persecution, even through various trials. And then as Peter had been discussing then believers' relationship with one another, to have this brotherly love for one another, and that together they, they are the church, the, the spiritual house, this priesthood. Now as we come to this passage, he shifts a little bit, and, and instead of talking about our relationship together as believers, he starts talking about what our relationship is with those outside the church in the world. And so as we go through this, I believe this begins a, a larger section that is broken up into smaller sections. And the heading of this section, of the larger section, is found in verses 11 through 12, where we see Peter calls believers to live as strangers and aliens in this world, living to pursue, again, holiness, putting off sin, that they would glorify God in this world. And we'll talk about how he... He discusses how that should take place. And then today we'll also go over verses 13 through 17. And as we come to verse 13, this is where he begins to unfold what it looks like to live in this world as aliens and strangers. And he here begins to look at three areas of submission, three areas of authority that we're to submit to. And the first one, which is the one we'll go over today, is that of human authorities, specifically of government authorities. And so with that said, let's read our text here for this morning. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so as we begin and, and are looking at first verses 11 and 12, uh, again, we see here the call for believers to live in this world as strangers, as aliens, that we are to pursue holiness, and in that God will be glorified even among unbelievers. 
And so as Peter begins to uh, address the church here in this section, he, he calls them beloved. And, and I think this does a couple things. One, I think it marks off a new section, this, this larger section that I was talking about. And when we see him refer to them as beloved again, I think he's then starting another new section, uh, a major section. But also, too, using this term of endearment, I think we see Peter doing exactly what he taught the church to do, to have this family love for one another. And we see with this term of endearment, Peter loved those whom he was writing to. He loved his brothers and sisters in Christ. And now, as we discuss from earlier in 1 Peter, as Christians live in this world, we live in a world system that we ourselves do not belong to, as we belong to Christ. We are not at home here. We, as followers of Christ, ultimately are not citizens of this world, but are citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God, first and foremost, and therefore our allegiance is to King Jesus, first and foremost. Therefore, as we remain in this world, among the systems of this world, which we do not plan to be in for long, right? Our desire is to be with our Lord. But as we live here, for as long as God has us to be here to proclaim his excellencies, we are to live not as the people of this world, but as the people of God. Because that is what we are. We are the people of God. And so Peter exhorts his readers, as he says here, as sojourners and exiles, or it could also say as aliens and strangers, he calls them to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, Christians are to abstain from the natural desires that they would have apart from the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they are to abstain from the natural desires that the world follows and the, the world chases after. Again, we're not of this world. We, we live in this world as strangers, and so we should be strangers in this world, not conforming to this world. We're not to give in to those sinful desires that are contrary to the new birth, contrary to what we will be when we experience that future grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Those passions are no longer representative of who we are if we are trusting in Jesus Christ. We are new. We have been born again. So how could we continue to live as if we're not new? How can we continue to live as if we're still our old selves, if we have been indeed born again? I would argue, and I think it's clear from Scripture, that we cannot continue in unrepentant sin. We cannot continue in an unbroken lifestyle of sin. We are no longer that person. And so as we, we even go through this section, we see uh, that the new birth and our living hope is the basis even for what Peter says here in this section. Now, since Peter has to tell them to abstain from such passions, that implies that our fleshly desires, our fleshly passions, don't just disappear altogether when we're saved, right? Uh, some might. And there are those who uh, have had certain sinful habits, maybe characteristic habits of them, uh, that, that were really how they lived, that when they came to Christ, it was such a radical change that God did in them that, that those specific desires did go away. 
Uh, that, that's true for many, but even then, there are still some desires that they continue to wrestle with. And for all of us, we, we continue to wrestle with sin. We have the new birth. We have the internal working of the Holy Spirit changing us. We are being sanctified, growing in holiness. But that work of sanctification is not completed in this life. It's not completed this side of eternity. And so there are desires from our natural self, our old self, that remains. And so there is an ongoing battle against sin. And it is a battle. And that, that's exactly how Peter describes it here. He says these passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. And what do you do? What do you do if you have an enemy that declares war on you? What do you do with an enemy who wages war against you? I think you have two options, right? You can either surrender and allow that enemy to conquer you, allow that enemy to have its way with you, or you can engage in warfare against that enemy. And I think that's exactly what Peter is calling for here. Now, two, I, I want to make the point that I, I think this addresses something that many Christians get confused on. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Whole Christ, which is a book I, I highly recommend, uh, he says this about that confusion. He says, Younger Christians, in particular, can be misled by the dramatic transformation of the affections that take place in regeneration. The joy of deliverance and the empowerment to obedience can be misunderstood as though sin's presence will rarely trouble them again. Subsequently, any powerful reawakening of indwelling sin may lead to the false conclusion that perhaps, after all, their conversion was simply another passing phase and that they have never really become Christians at all. See, we may get confused if, as we continue to struggle against sin. If I'm really saved, if I'm really following Christ, why do I continue to struggle against sin? But the truth of the matter is that that struggle against sin should not cause us to doubt our faith, doubt our salvation, but instead if we are genuinely engaging in the battle, fighting against our sin, longing to see our sin die in us, it's actually evidence that we are saved as we do battle with our sin. And those whom Christ have saved, those who are born again, do take up the battle against their sin. And again, that's what Peter is calling for here. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Fight back. Say no to your desires that are contrary to the new birth and the living hope that you were born again into. And listen, in your pursuit of holiness, in your battle against sin, in my battle against sin, we, we have to rely on God. Right? It's really in His strength that we have the victory. It's nothing in of ourselves. And so in your battle, in taking up that fight, rely on God. Go to Him in prayer. Go to His Word. Remember, as we talked about last time, or the time before that, that... As we put off sin, we are to desire the pure spiritual milk of his word. 
And we talked about how uh, the quote of that this book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. Don't be kept from God's word. Go to his word. Go to him in prayer. Uh, Pray for the spirit to apply these things to your life and live it out. Rely on God. Trust in him. It's in his strength that we can have victory over our sin. And if there is any area in your life where you are not seeing victory, you are not seeing growth, that there is sin that is not being conquered but seems to be conquering you, my friend, we also have to realize that he has given us each other. That, again, we are the body of Christ. We are uh, the, the living stones that, that are the building blocks of the church, and we are to be the body of the people of God together. And he has made it that we are part of each other's sanctification. And so, my friends, in your struggle against sin, do not struggle alone. That being able to be trusted and trusting one another is part of how we show that family love. And so go to your brother or sister in Christ and express your need and and that we can be there for each other and you can have someone knowing that, that they are praying for you, that they can be there to point you back for your reliance on God and that they can encourage you and hold you accountable. We have to be there for each other. God has placed us here together to be there for each other. And so, my friends, the question is, what will it take for you to wage war against your sin? What will it take for you to take up the battle and persistently fight against your sin to see that it would die in you? But what extent are you willing to go to to see it die in you? Even if that means sharing your sin with someone else, exposing your sin. My friends, the truth of the matter is, if you do not war against the passions of your flesh, those passions that war against your soul will destroy you. So take up the fight. Abstain from the passions of your flesh. And then we see in verse 12, not only are Christians to live as aliens and strangers by abstaining from their fleshly desires, but also by keeping their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles here uh, is in reference to unbelievers or the unbelieving world. And the word that describes the conduct that Peter is calling for here, translated in the English Standard Version as honorable, it can also be translated as beautiful or attractive. Now, the world will not see every behavior of believers as attractive. As we stand on the truth of God's word, as we live lives that are contrary to the lives of those who live in the world, as we are confronting sin and proclaiming the truth to the world around us, the world will not see all that we do as attractive. But nonetheless, the world has an internal working of God's standard of good. There is a knowledge of right and wrong that they know. And so they are able to look and see if our lives are in consistent living with the new birth we claim to have. Now, I was thinking about, uh, not too long ago, Jerry was telling me about when he worked at uh, Ford Motor World, right? That's Ford Motors, right? That's where you worked in Michigan, yeah. Um, And you were saying about how those who profess faith that work there, they were watched by the other workers, right? 
And the other workers took notice if their lives and the things they were doing there on the job were consistent with their profession of faith. Right? They, they took notice and, and made comments about it. See, believers are under a watchful eye. Sometimes because unbelievers are, are looking for us to mess up. They're looking for the inconsistencies in our lives, and for a few reasons. One, because they're hostile against us. We do live in a hostile world. And unbelievers can be contentious against us. And some look for the inconsistencies in our lives so that they can attack us with those things. There are others who look for those inconsistencies in order for an excuse for themselves not to believe. And really, it is just an excuse. That's all it is. And really, the truth is, we ourselves, as followers of Christ, we do not say that we've reached perfection. We, we know we haven't. Uh, though perfect holiness is what we are to be pursuing. And again, we, we saw Peter call his readers to that. But yet, there are times we need to repent. There are times when we need to seek forgiveness from others. And so, when that happens, we need to. And our, we need to be working to bring our lives into alignment with our profession of faith. And as we look here at this passage, Peter also shows another motivation to bring our lives into alignment with the new birth, to, to war against our fleshly passions. And, and that motivation, as we see here, is for the sake of evangelism keeping our conduct before unbelievers attractive, as he says here, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, as strangers in this world, we are in hostile territory. And some will seek to malign believers. We see that throughout church history. Matter of fact, one commentator explains how Christians were maligned in Peter's day. He says Christians were being slandered as irreligious because of not worshiping the heathen gods. They were slandered as morons and ascetics, uh, ascetics being the idea of practicing severe self-discipline, almost you know, even mutilation. Um, and why were they accused of that? And he says because of refraining from popular vices. They were accused of being disloyal to the government because of claiming allegiance to a heavenly king. We also know many talk about how uh, Christians in the Roman Empire were accused of, of many other things, uh, such as cannibalism, uh, because they ate the body, the body of Christ and drank the blood of Christ. Now, we know that's in reference to communion, and that the elements of the bread and juice or wine don't actually turn into the body and blood of Christ, but in that we remember our Lord, right? But yet they were accused of such things. And there were other things Christians were accused of in that world at that time, and there are things that we're accused of today as well. As we live for Christ, as our lives are lived differently than the world around us, the world will come against us. As we proclaim the gospel, uh, the exclusivity of Jesus, the world will come against us. And so what are we to do? We are to live, abstaining from our fleshly desires. Living not to confirm the things they say, 
but instead that by seeing our good deeds, they would be led to glorify God on the day of visitation. It's for his glory. Again, specifically on the day of visitation. Now we may ask, well, what, what is the day of visitation? And in truth, there is some debate about that. Uh, some point to the idea of God visiting in the Old Testament and say this is referring to God coming in judgment. And if that's the case, uh, then this is in reference to these people who had the testimony of believers before their lives and still rejected their Lord. And so God will glorify himself in bringing his judgment on them. Now, is that true? Yeah, that, that is true. God will glorify himself in that way. But I think what fits the context better is that this is a reference to salvation, uh, just as we see God visiting as a reference to salvation in the Gospel of Luke. That our lives lived putting off the flesh, living honorably before a watching world, though they might not call our lives honorable at the moment, God would use us to call his elect in the world to himself. That through our abstaining from the vices of this world, as we earnestly pursue holiness, as we repent when we do sin, when we admit our wrong and, and seek to be reconciled to whoever, whoever we must, that that would speak volumes to a watching world. And God may use our lives to give us opportunity to share the gospel or use our lives to open up someone's heart to the truth of the gospel, that those in the world who hear the gospel would then repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. So on the day Christ appears, they will glorify him as a mighty Savior who saved them out of the world, who saved them out of darkness into his marvelous light, just as he did for us. You know, my friends, it is absolutely true that you cannot preach the gospel simply by just how you live. You can't. You must tell others of their need for a Savior. You must tell others of Jesus Christ and what he has done. You must call others to repentance and faith. But it is equally true that you cannot preach the gospel without a life that demonstrates the power of the gospel to save by living a life that is conforming to the holiness of your Savior. It must be both. That is what we're called to. We must preach and proclaim the gospel, and we must live it out. And so we are to live as strangers in this world. We are to abstain from our fleshly desires, keeping our conduct before unbelievers as honorable. And then, as we come to verse 13 here, we get... Peter beginning to unfold what that looks like. What it looks like to live as aliens and strangers. What it looks like to keep our conduct before unbelievers honorable. And again, here he begins by talking about three areas of submission. And the first area which we are looking at here this morning is the area of human authorities, governing authorities. Here Peter commands his readers to submit to every human institution and the reason being for his command to submit is for the Lord's sake. And I believe this does two things. Saying that our submission, our being subject to human authorities, is for the Lord's sake, 
One, it heightens Peter's command. Obedience to the governing authorities is for our Lord. Christians are to obey the authorities over them out of their reverent submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That in our submission, we are serving our Lord's purposes. We obey for the Lord's sake. But on the other hand, I also believe this limits our submission. There are those who would argue from this text and from Romans 13 that the command to submit to authorities is total. That we are to submit in every matter, no matter what. There are others who may say that we are to submit in everything unless the government tells us that we can't evangelize. Or if they're calling us to, to worship something or someone else other than God. Otherwise, if they're not doing those two things, we are to submit. And often, Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not bowing down to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol is referenced. Uh, in Acts, when John and Peter are arrested and they stand before the Jewish ruling council and they tell that Jewish ruling council that they must obey God rather than man, and so therefore they refuse to not preach Christ, that's often referenced as well. And so we see these examples of um, civil disobedience, and we argue from those. This, these are the things, these are the times we, we, we are called to disobey. But I think we also need to recognize there are more than just those two examples. Uh, we have an exodus, for instance, uh, the midwives who refuse to kill the baby boys that are born to Jewish women. Now you may say, well, yeah, but that, that would have been murder. Right. But still, so there's something else, right? <laughs> so, so now murder's the line, right? We're not, we're not going to murder. Uh, but then, too, we have the Apostle Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. That they're told to leave, and I, I'm not sure who it was, but someone pointed out that when they're told to leave and they don't, they're disobeying three levels of authority there. They have the magistrate, the police, and the jailer. And they say, no, we're, we're not leaving. You need to come here and publicly take us out. There was a reason for it. So we have different examples of civil disobedience in Scripture, and we have to wrestle with those things and say, what, what are they all about? Why were they times when God's people chose to disobey? But we also have other modern examples. We have the Holocaust survivor, Corey Tenboom, who very often is lifted up as a, a strong Christian. But by the standard of many of those who lift her up as such a Christian, by their standard, they're, they're, they're saying that she was wrong for what she did, what her and her family did in hiding Jewish people from the Nazis. Because if say, well, we, we, we obey unless we are disobeying in obeying the government, disobeying a specific Bible verse. Well, what specific Bible verse would she been disobeying by not hiding Jewish people from, from the Nazis? we got to think through that. You might say, well, she wouldn't have been loving her neighbor. I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. But be careful, because now that opens the door up to further conversation on when we submit and when we don't submit. The government does not have the final word. King Jesus has the final word. We submit to the authorities 
the authorities that be, for what reason? For the Lord's sake. How can we obey for the sake of our Lord if what is commanded of us sets us in opposition to the Lord's revealed will? Yes, it is his will that we worship him alone. It is his will that we proclaim the gospel. It is his will that we love others and to think of others' interests before our own. Which actually, I think that's what's going on there in Acts when Paul is in the Philippian jail. He's thinking of the other Christians there in Philippi and how they're going to face persecution. And so he's working at keeping it, putting an end to what happened to him for the sake of others. Yet at the same time, even as I say all of this, as we look here at 1 Peter, understanding this leaves us with no excuse for anarchy. We are not revolutionaries to overthrow. Our mission is to proclaim Christ and Christ crucified. And so we are to have an attitude of submission, to submit whenever we can, keeping our conduct among unbelievers honorable. You know, John Calvin, he explains Peter's command here to submit by pointing to how the Roman society viewed the Jewish people in Peter's day. In his commentary, he says this, The Jews were especially hated and counted infamous for this reason, because they were regarded on account of their perverseness as ungovernable. And as the, com as the commotions which they raised up in the province were caused of great calamity, so that everyone of a quiet and peaceful disposition dreaded them as the plague. This was the reason that induced Peter to speak so strongly on subjection. Be subject to every human institution. Christians should be known as a submissive people. But we never follow the will of an authority that puts us in conflict with God's will for us. And yet Peter calls for submission. We're to have an attitude of submission to the, to the highest level of authority, as, as Peter refers to the king or the emperor here. And also to the lower levels of authority. As he refers to the governors as sent by the king to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And what do we see there, too? What's the government for? The government is to promote what is good, what is objectively good. And they're to punish what is evil. And you know, all society, everybody, uh, the ultimate reason why anybody should do good is for the sake of the Lord, right? But if they're not going to do it for the sake of the Lord, God has instituted the government by his grace to constrain sin. And so that we would think twice before we do something that is evil and wrong because we know there's going to be consequences. And so in that way, the government promotes what is good and they deal with what is evil. They punish those who do evil. And so if you do what is good, you should expect praise from the government. But now we also have to think then, what about when the government instead of promoting what is good, is promoting what is evil and punishing what is good. We have to work through that. We see in all of this, Christians should be doing 
what is good. Christians should be doing what is best for the society around them. We should care about people and care about order and justice, care about doing good, and therefore be a submissive people. Verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So in our submission, we demonstrate that we are good citizens. We demonstrate we care about the good of society. We care about the good of others. And so we leave no room for those whom Peter mentioned earlier, those who would speak against you as evil. We leave no room for them to justify their gossip and their slander. But by our good works, we silence the ignorance of foolish people. We silence the unreasonableness. We, we silence their willing rejection of truth in hostility against us as we pursue what is good, as we live submissive lives. Again, Peter conveys that we are to have an inward attitude of submission. And I would argue then, even when we can't submit, we should still have an attitude of submission. Not a smug attitude and, <laughs> I ain't submitting to you. What is our attitude? What is our heart? We just submit to the governing authorities without disobeying our Lord's will. We recognize that ultimately we do not stand before police officers. We do not stand before judges, governors, senators, even the president. We don't stand ultimately before any of them. We are going to stand before King Jesus. And in Jesus, each one of us who have trusted in him alone for our salvation, we are free. And so in verse 16, Peter tells his readers to act as free people. We are free from the old life we lived before Christ saved us. We are free from the feudal ways, the religions and traditions inherited from our forefathers as we've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. We are free from the condemnation and fear, having been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we are to live out this freedom unto Christ. But we should not use such freedom as an excuse to not submit. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Because really, what does freedom mean? Freedom means we have the ability to do what is good. We are free to do what is right, what our Lord calls us to. We are a free people. We need to act like it. But it's not an excuse for disobedience. And we see as we live as free people, we are free people that are the Lord's servants. As it says here, but living as servants of God. And the word servant there is, is the Greek word for slave. We are God's slaves. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him. And as we are his slaves, his word tells us that we are to submit. And in verse 17, our Lord, by his apostle, commands, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We are to live such lives 
that we honor and respect everybody. No matter anything about them, no matter who they are, we are to show dignity and respect towards other people. Whether it is our president, whether it is police officers, our neighbors, our coworkers, our relatives, or whoever, we have respect for all because all people were created in the image of God. And then, too, we are to remember the priority to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to have a love for one another here in the church. And we are to fear God. And as Peter has already called for fear, we discussed what that means to fear God. That we have this reverent fear and devotion to him out of recognition of his lordship. We, with such love for him, fear to displease him or grieve him by our sin. We love him and so want to please our Lord. And so we obey him in reverent fear. And therefore, if we fear the Lord, we will honor the king or honor the emperor. We will honor those that are in authority over us. See, my friends, don't we want to do what is pleasing to God? out of our love and devotion to him? Don't we recognize that that we are not our own? But the truth of the matter is sometimes we don't don't want to submit. (laughs) The truth of the matter is that more often than not, well, maybe I should speak for myself, uh, it's hard to have that attitude of submission, right? I mean, it's tax season right now, right? (laughs) It can be hard to submit, (laughs) You know, I really have to record everything I brought in. I mean, there's, there's tax breaks of some sort that I can finagle in here. Right? And we're, we're called to submit. When we see those speed limit signs, especially when we're late, <laughs> we're called to submit, right? Sometimes we don't want to submit. Sometimes it's hard to submit, but we need to recognize that we are not our own. And we are called to submit for the Lord's sake. And so wherever we're at and whatever is going on, whatever our situation is at work, at school, uh, or whatever it may be where we are under authority, all human institutions, we are to submit to those. And in doing so, we live as strangers in a hostile world. This is how we respond to those who would speak evil against us. We do not give them cause to speak in such a way, but we silence them by our good works. We obey our Lord, having this attitude of submission, and so we keep our conduct among the unbelievers honorable. We keep it beautiful, attractive, praying that through our lives, God would be using us for his glory, that he may save some out of this world, save some out of their darkness into his marvelous light. Don't you want to be used for God's glory? Don't you recognize that you're not your own? Submit to him, and in doing so, submit to the authorities he's put over you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.